Hey, good morning, everyone. Is it still morning? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for such a kind introduction. I feel like I now need to live up to that, uh, so no pressure. Uh, we love you guys here. We love your church, as uh, Mark has said, uh, over the last, I guess, quite a number of years, but definitely over the last couple of years of the pandemic. We've kind of been looking at each other and uh, copying each other and occasionally working with each other and have loved uh, the opportunity to do that. Uh, you have like a wonderful church here, wonderful leaders. And as Mark has already said, we've been uh, great friends for a good number of years. Mark and Nita led worship at our wedding 25 years ago, and uh, we've remained really good friends over that time. Um, you know, like in life, you need good friends, don't you? Uh, in life, you need a few people who you can talk honestly with, and uh, Mark and Nita are those kind of friends for us, and we, we love them, uh, we have great appreciation for them, and we're delighted that we could just spend a weekend with you guys as well. Uh, myself and Helen, we have four children, and they're aging from 11 through to 22, so we're just at the stage of life where we get a little bit more freedom uh, to, to like travel around and to visit some churches and teach in some churches and so on. Uh, we lead a wonderful church back in Coventry. Uh, it's a church where there's about 70 different nations. Uh, so it's a really kind of uh, diverse church, which we really, really love. And we've been there since 1997, uh, so nearly 25 years ago. And I've really seen the church grow and develop over that time. So uh, it's, uh, But it's really lovely just to spend some time uh, being with you guys today. So a few years ago now, I read the true story of a preacher a preacher of international fame. He interacted with people in the highest echelons of power. The impact of his ministry was widely recognized by his peers and even by leaders of other religious traditions. His work faced many different challenges from really powerful opponents. And yet somehow he just kept on going. His personal integrity remained unchallenged. His spiritual life was impeccable. He saw answers to prayer that were nothing short of miraculous. His moral character was untainted by scandal. He not only had distant admirers, but he was also capable of really close personal relationships. His assertiveness and his willingness to confront challenges head on was legendary. He had just experienced the greatest success in his ministry, one of those peak moments in his career, and then he became afraid. He was gripped by fear and anxiety. In fact, he was so full of fear that he withdrew not only from ministry, but from every single relationship. His loss of energy and motivation went way beyond the normal bounds of a burnout. He was no longer able to connect with other people emotionally. His perceptions became distorted. He really believed that who he was and what he had done uh, uh, didn't have any value at all. He felt isolated and abandoned. And he was certain that no one was going to support him in his life's work. He was in a state of fatigue. Uh, both his appetite and his sleep patterns were disrupted. His emotional mood was extremely low. Uh, he berated himself and he believed that he was no longer able to make any significant contribution in this life. He was consumed by fear and hopelessness. 
In fact, his desire to live had largely eroded and he wanted to die. His name was Elijah, one of our Bible's greatest heroes. You know, throughout the pandemic, there's been a question that keeps coming back to me. And it's a question that I'm asking, not out of criticism or condemnation, but it's a question that I'm asking out of curiosity and concern. And the question is this, what is everyone afraid of? Because I've personally never known a time when fear seems to have had such an impact upon so many people. In fact, I do wonder whether the most significant impact of the COVID-19 pandemic will be a pandemic of fear. Obviously, it's been a very challenging time for so many people. But I think one of the most unusual things of the last 24 months has been the request that both the courageous and the fearful were asked to do the exact same thing. Everyone was asked to stay at home. It has to be one of the few times in history when fear and courage look like the same thing. And so as the pandemic now enters into a new phase, uh, we'll probably start to discover what it was that really fueled our decisions. Was it courage or was it fear? And my guess is that it's likely that actually when we think it through, fear will have been the driving force behind so many of our actions and our decisions over the last couple of years. I'm sure many people were afraid of losing control. Uh, Many people have probably been afraid of illness and pain. Many people have probably been afraid of financial ruin. I guess many people probably have found that the fears that they had before the pandemic have just been multiplied over the last couple of years. And of course, others have been simply afraid of death. And while, of course, we may uh, give our own answers to that original question of like, what is everybody afraid of? And we might see it in slightly different ways. What I guess we'll probably all agree is, is that when fear rules your heart, it's not a good thing. So many people find that fear prevents them becoming the kind of person that they want to become. So many people find that fear blocks them from living the kind of life that they really want to live. You know, the first time that fear is mentioned in the Bible, it's Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Adam and Eve are responsible for the first sin in the Garden of Eden. And then God comes and he asks them this question, where are you? And Adam responds and says, I was afraid, so I hid. Which perfectly describes what fear does. Fear keeps us in the shadows. Fear prevents us stepping into our destiny. Fear isolates us. Fear robs us. Fear creates an environment that limits us or it belittles us or it reduces us. Because for most of us, our purpose is the other side of our fears. And it's almost like you have to come out of hiding and you have to walk through your fears in order to step into your calling. That is why I believe the Bible commands us time and time and time again, do not be afraid. And I use that word command quite deliberately because I believe that the repeated teaching of the Bible that we should resist 
fear and step into a life of courage isn't actually an emotional response. It is a response to a command given by God. So my mind goes to the story of Joshua. Joshua is handed the baton of leadership from Moses and God has to say to him on three occasions, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. So courage in the face of fear requires obedience to a command. It's not an optional response. It's not even an emotional response. It's a response that you make to a command from God. You know, in the original Hebrew language, the command, be strong and courageous, is the Hebrew statement, rak hazak. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I am hoping that I said that correctly. Uh, my guess is, and I'm hoping that there are no Hebrew scholars in the room as well, but would you mind just turning to the person next to you, give them your very best Hebrew, and say, rak hazak, be strong and courageous. Just be bold. Rak Hazak. Be bold, be strong, and courageous. You know, that statement for God's people, it became a statement that they would make when they went into battle. It was like a war cry. Uh, you may be familiar with films like Gladiator and Braveheart and they, uh, the pictures of soldiers about to go into war and they would chant a mantra, a war cry as they would go into battle with the hope that as they made that declaration, they would help them overcome their fears and they would go into battle with courage. It was their uh, version of positive self-talk. God's people stepping into the battle would shout that declaration, Rak Hazak, be strong and courageous. You know, over the years, I've run a good chunk of marathons. I was talking a little bit about it yesterday. And one of the things that I found uh, running a marathon is that it's really important to give yourself some positive self-talk so that you keep going through the pain of running the marathon. And so over the years, I've learned how to almost like repeat certain phrases in my head so that I would just keep going towards the end. I'm feeling strong. I am feeling strong. I am feeling strong. You know, I am full of energy. I am full of energy. I am full of it. I am Mo Farah. It's like, I am, I am, Mo, I am Mo Farah. I am Paula Radcliffe. I, you, know, you know, you repeat things in your mind. Almost a positive self-talk because you pray that what's going on in your mind will eventually flow into your body and you keep moving forward until you hit the finish line. You know, you and I would do well to adopt some positive self-talk. We could probably do worse than that. It would actually be good to do something that the psalmist encourages us to do and to actually speak to our soul. There are times, aren't there, in the Psalms where the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like he talks to himself and he says, I'm going to step into the future. I'm going to step into the destiny for my life with courage. But the way I'm going to do that is through speaking to my soul. Sometimes that's what you have to do when you are facing great fear. You speak to your soul and you tell your heart to be courageous. You say to your soul, come on, be strong. 
Folks, you and I would do well to actually have that as a habit, a bit of self-talk. But do you know something that will only ever take you so far because it has its limits? In the face of great fear, the solution isn't just to speak into your soul. What you actually need is God to speak into your soul. In some ways, Elijah's story is not too dissimilar to ours. Many of you will know the story of 1 Kings 18. It's the story of a big showdown. It's City United. It is uh, Arsenal Spurs. It is West Ham Millwall, the greatest showdown of all. It happens to be Yahweh and Baal. Elijah stands before the people and he says to them, it is time to choose. You can no longer put two crosses on the ballot paper. You can no longer have two masters. It's either God or Baal. It is time to decide. Up until this point, God's people have pretty much been sitting on the fence. They've been trying to worship God and Baal at the exact same time. They hadn't rejected either. They were trying to embrace two religious systems in one go. Just to prove that I have a Bible college education, the theological word for that is syncretism. It's an attempt to adopt more than one religion at one time. Elijah says, it's got to stop. It's time to decide. And so Elijah, of course, sets up the challenge, two altars, two sacrifices, whichever God answers by fire is the winner. The prophets of Baal pray. They scream, they shout. They bargain with their God. They put on a show. They pray as if they'll get their God's attention by doing something incredibly dramatic. But Elijah's form of prayer is very different. Elijah prays with a quiet confidence. There's no yelling. There's no dramatics. He quietly and calmly believes that God is going to show up. Of course, when Elijah prays, the fire falls. God wins. Elijah wins. Elijah's on a high. He kills the prophets of Baal. Uh, Everybody decides to follow God. The rain comes. The drought is ended. He has the supernatural strength to outrun a chariot. He's the winner. Life doesn't get much better than that. For Elijah, it's almost like he has the Midas touch. Everything that he touches seems to turn to gold. You'd like to think that he lives in this permanent state of victory forever. But you know something? No one lives on the mountaintop all the time. See, here's the truth about my life. Here's the truth about your life. And here's the truth about Elijah's life. We will have peaks and valleys the whole of our lives. There will be moments where we feel like we're on the mountaintop and life is incredibly good. And then we have moments where we dip into the valley and life is incredibly tough. Life is like that. Life is like that for you. It's like that for me. It's like that for Elijah. So let me take you to some words that are found in 1 Kings 19, right at the start of the chapter. You'll probably see them on the screen, but if you have them in front of you, that's also good. Now Ahab told Jezebel, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow 
I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Elijah has had an adrenaline-filled, record-setting run of achievements. And now he's about to snap. Elijah is vulnerable. Elijah is full of doubt. Elijah is depressed. Elijah is stressed. Elijah is full of fear. The man who had previously prayed for fire to come from heaven, now he's praying that he will die. Thankfully, there are times when God doesn't give us the things that we pray for. Thankfully, there are times when God believes in us, when we stop believing in ourselves. God speaks to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here? Because of fear, Elijah had left his post. Because of fear, Elijah is running away from his responsibilities. Because of fear, Elijah is about to quit on his calling. And so God asks him, like, what are you doing here, Elijah? Of course, whenever God asks anyone a question, he's never asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He always asks someone a question because he wants them to look deep into their heart and to search their motives and to understand what's going on inside of them. If you take time to read 1 Kings 19, maybe this week, you'll see that actually God asks Elijah that exact same question twice and Elijah gives the exact same response twice. It goes like this, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. It seems that Elijah has an internal narrative that he keeps repeating over and over and over again such to the extent that he's almost memorized it. And it's a story that he keeps telling himself. God, I have worked so hard for you. God, everyone is against me. God, everyone wants to kill me. God, I am here all alone and no one cares. God, I'm the only one left. God, I might as well just die. It seems that Elijah just repeats that over and over and over and over and over again, continually playing that story in his mind to the extent then that he just spirals down into a pit of despair and disillusionment and fear and doubt. Of course, like many of our internal narratives, Those internal narratives are usually based either on distorted truths or on downright lies. So if you dig deeper into 1 Kings 19, you'll actually see something of the truth there. You'll actually see that Elijah wasn't the only one left, but there were at least 7,000 other people who were working alongside him. You'll also see that God hasn't forgotten him. 
that actually God arranges for food, for water, and for rest. And you'll also discover that actually the, the fear of death that so gripped Elijah never came. In fact, God actually arranged for a chariot to take him to heaven so that he would never face death or taste death. The thing that Elijah feared the most actually never happened. But in his lowest moment, his mind was filled with lights. He played them over and over and over again. So I teach this stuff to my church all the time in Coventry, so I reckon I'll uh, try my best to teach it to you today. You have an enemy, and his potent weapon is his lies. That is why Jesus calls him the father of lies, and his signature move is to get his voice into your head so that you linger on his lies to the point of agreeing with them or believing them as truth. That is why it's really important that you learn to replace the lies with truth. So I tell my church time and time again that there are three truths. If I can only give you three truths, these three truths are the most important truths that you can play over in your mind over and over again to counteract the lies of the enemy. The three truths are these. I have a good father. I am a loved child. And I have a great purpose. I have a good father because Matthew 7:11 says that he loves to give good gifts to us, his children. I, I, I'm a loved child because 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And I have a great purpose because Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that I am God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he has prepared in advance for me to do. I believe that those three statements, those truth statements, help fill your minds with truth, especially when you sense that you're playing over in your mind all kinds of stories that are filled with lies and they challenge that internal narrative. So I wonder, like, what is your internal narrative? Like, what is the story that you keep repeating to yourself over and over again? Like, when you look back over the last uh, couple of years, like, what is the story that you keep telling yourself? Or maybe as you look back over the course of your life, what is the internal narrative that you keep coming back to over and over and over again? Can I tell you one of mine? I started working in the church that I am in now as the youth pastor in 1997. I was 24 years of age. And then in 2005, I became the senior pastor of the church. So I was 31 years of age. And I had an internal story, an internal narrative that went something like this. I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, I'm unqualified, and there are loads of people out there who could do the job better than me. And for probably 10 years, that was my internal narrative. I'm too young, I'm inexperienced, I'm unqualified, and there are loads of people out there who could do the job better than me. And in those days, people used to introduce me as their young pastor. By the way, they don't do that anymore. <laughs> but every time somebody introduced me as 
his Duncan, he's our young pastor, whilst they were being incredibly kind, in my mind, I was hearing something different. I was hearing, here's Duncan, he's our young pastor, and he's unqualified. Here's Duncan, he's our young pastor, and he's inexperienced. Here's Duncan, and he's our young pastor, and he doesn't really know what he's doing. But one day, maybe he will when he grows up and he gets a bit more mature. And I reckon for 10 years of my life, that was my internal narrative. Too young, inexperienced, doesn't really know what he's doing. One day he might. So I wonder what your internal narrative is. Like what is the story that keeps going over and over and over again in your mind? Like maybe over the last couple of years, what is that story? Or, or what is the story that you just have been telling yourself for years and years and years? I'll always be ill. I'll never have enough money. I'm always going to be stuck in this job. I'm never really going to find my purpose. My family, they're always going to be messed up. My marriage is never going to be quite right. I'm always going to be unloved. I'll never be able to return to the things that I used to do. I wonder what your internal narrative is. Elijah's internal narrative went something like this. I'm the only one left. No one really cares. God's abandoned me. Everyone's abandoned me. I might as well throw in the towel and quit. Over and over and over again. Do you know what God does? God does something beautiful in the text. You may look at it sometime in 1 Kings 19. God invites Elijah up the mountain to speak to him. Elijah comes out of the mountain and God is about to pass by. And if you know the text, there's a moment where the wind blows. There's a moment where the earth shakes. There's a moment where the fire falls. And the text says that God isn't in any of that stuff. Because God isn't always in the spectacular, but God is always in the whisper. And God whispers into Elijah's soul. You ever wondered why God did that? Why does God whisper? My gut feeling is that it's about proximity. It's about coming close. Because you know when you whisper to somebody, you whisper something to them very close to them and something that only they can hear. So I've been married to Helen 25 years. We started dating when we were teenagers. So we've uh, been married a good chunk of time and known each other a long time. And every now and again, I will want to say something to Helen that I don't want anybody else to hear. And so I whisper. Sometimes I will say to her, I love her. Sometimes I'll say that I'm grateful for something that she's done. And sometimes I just don't want anyone to hear. So I whisper. So if it's okay, I'm going to have a moment of romance on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> See, there's something special about a whisper, isn't there? It's like a moment of intimacy. It's a moment of proximity. 
It's a, a moment of closeness. You have no idea what I just said to Helen. And you probably have no idea what God says to Elijah. But Elijah playing through all of those things in his mind, all those doubts, all those fears, all those stories, he stands before God and God whispers. I wonder what he whispered. Elijah. Elijah, I've got you. Elijah, I'm holding you in the palm of your hand. Like Elijah, don't be afraid. Elijah, Elijah, be strong. Elijah, be full of courage. Elijah, like Rak, Hazak, be strong and courageous. Do you know something? We don't know what God whispers to Elijah, but what we do know is that when God spoke to him and he heard the whisper, he got up on his feet and he got back doing the very thing that God had called him to do. So I wonder, as I wrap up, what is God whispering to you? See, I believe that God loves to whisper. And I believe that God is always speaking to us. Sometimes we think that God is absent, but actually God isn't absent. It's sometimes just an issue of our awareness. Sometimes we think that God is silent, but God isn't necessarily silent. It's just sometimes we don't have the ability to listen. But what happens this week if you and I, as we play through all of those internal narratives, what would happen if we actually listened for his whisper. I've got you. I love you. You are mine. I'm going to hold your family in the palm of my hands. Don't quit. Don't walk away. You are loved, you know. Be strong. Be strong. I'm very And we pray. Father God, in these moments, as we just still our hearts before you, we invite you to come and speak into our soul. We know, Lord God, that you call us into courageous living. But we also know, Lord God, that sometimes we just want to throw in the towel and quit. No matter how hard we speak to ourselves and no matter how much we try to convince ourselves to keep going, Lord God, we really need to hear your voice. We need to hear you whisper into our soul. And so my prayer for every person in this room, every person who's watching online today, that they will have a heart that is open to your loving presence and they will have a sensitivity to your voice so that even in the stillness, they will pick up the sound of the still small voice, your voice. So would you whisper into their soul? Would you speak words of love and grace and healing and hope and restoration? Lord God, I pray for those even who wanna throw in the towel and quit right now. Well, God, I pray that they'd hear your whisper, they'd get back on their feet, 
and they'd keep moving forward into their calling and destiny. Father God, we're grateful that you counteract all those lies in our minds with your truth. Thank you that we're loved. Thank you that you're a good father. And thank you that you've given us a great purpose. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys.